Hi, everybody, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience research podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. Normally we're on Thursday, but today we're on Wednesday, and we're talking with Joita Basu, who is assistant professor in the Neurosciences, Neuroscience Institute, the Department of Neuroscience and Physiology, and also the Department of Psychiatry at New York University's Grossman School of Medicine. Uh, Joita's work is on neurons and circuits in the hippocampus and interrhinal cortex, now these function in spatial and contextual learning. She uses neurophysiology and imaging and genetic manipulations to visualize electrical signals in cells and synapses that underlie these functions. Welcome, Joita. Thank you for having me here. Also with us is a podcast regular, our own Francesco Savelli, who also studies interrhinal cortex and hippocampus. Hi, Francesco. Hi. And me, I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. Joita, one of the most striking features of neurons in the brain is their highly branched dendritic processes, which receive most of the synaptic input, and are arranged in these tree structures that are unique to each cell type, mm-hmm. and actually unique to each cell within a cell type, although cells of a type look similar to each other. And from the first look at them in the 19th century, neuroscientists were just convinced, I think, that dendrites, dendrites represent pathways for the signals in neurons and that their branching structure tells us something about the logical operation performed by the neuron. And in fact, the branching trees look like logical trees. And it just invites us to think this input and this input or this input or this input. And, uh, and so people have looked for that, have been trying to see that for a hundred years, although they started out without any tools and without any means for doing it. Uh, But in recent decades, three decades maybe, the methods for visualizing signals in dendrites have gradually improved. And to the point where we actually can't see what's happening in several dendrites over one neuron in real time as the neuron is doing something real and meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so it's a wonderful opportunity, and maybe we will be able to answer those questions that we've been asking a long time. So could you start by filling us in on maybe something about how it is that we can now measure that stuff, and also some principles that have been learned by doing that? Yeah, so dendrites are really fascinating, and I feel like they can be computational functional units of neurons. And um, they're very thin processes, so they're harder to access electrically with patch clamping. But, you know, Bert Sackman and uh, uh, Greg Stewart and some of his postdocs, uh, Zachman's postdocs, they were able to come up with the method of dendritic patching, you know, patch clamp electrophysiology from single neuron dendrites. And uh, they could get intracellular access into what the dendrites were doing. Which is required if you want to see synaptic inputs and not just action potential. Exactly. And uh, then, you know, of course, the, it's, it's very challenging. Your patch pipette tip is bigger than the size of a, neuron, uh, of a neuronal dendrite. And, you know, nowadays we patch from mouse dendrites, which are submicron thin. So you have to approach them perpendicularly to patch from them, essentially. And we learned a lot about like the ion channels and you know the subthreshold activity going on in single neuron dendrites from this these patch clamp electrophysiology studies and acute slices in the cortex and the hippocampus. And it seems like there are some common principles, you know, certain ion channels like the 
NMDA receptors are very enriched in the distal dendrites. There are ion channels like the IH-HCN channels that are pacemaker channels. They're very enriched in the dendrites. GABA-B receptors are very enriched. And, you know, apical dendrites and basal dendrites might have different molecular makeups and structures. But it was only more recently where we could genetically... uh, you know, take genetically um, active calcium indicators, GCAMPs, and express them in, in neurons. And if we could do it sparsely enough that you can label one neuron and all its dendrites, then one could start studying how dendrites behave as compared to their soma and how the signals are being transformed. And if you could do this in vivo while an animal is awake and behaving, for example, in the visual cortex present visual gratings, you know, Spencer Smith and Mike Heuser found that different uh, visual gratings can trigger uh, dendritic spikes in branches of dendrites. And these are not a regenerative activity in the dendrites that doesn't necessarily propagate to the soma. So that's the other very interesting thing about dendrites and dendritic physiologists like me, we've come across dendritic spikes that are local to the dendrite. The soma is not privy to this. Yet these dendritic spikes that don't propagate are important. We think they're important for plasticity, for boosting synaptic, um, local synaptic plasticity. And they also help in, you know, these sometimes are complex spikes. They're NMDA and calcium gated. So they broaden the window for integration of inputs. So you no longer need inputs to be highly synchronously coincident to drive the somatic spike output. The soma works in a very coincident detection manner. The dendrites allow for more integration. And this is a very supralinear computation, you know. So small inputs coming and integrating together can allow for a very large regenerative spike activity to happen. So going back to imaging methods, you know, so in the visual cortex, in somatosensory cortex, and now in the hippocampus, we're seeing signs that separate dendritic branches of the same neuron could be encoding different pieces of information. Now, this is really happening where different dendrites encode different pieces of information or different features, say place location A versus B, or visual grating this versus that, then the computational capacity of the single neuron really gets exponentially expanded. So I think that's kind of one fascinating aspect. But then another question that comes in, are these logic gates? You know, you brought this up. Is it this signal or that? Or how do you combine the two? Is it democracy of all the dendrites that speaks for the output of the soma? Or is there some mechanism to selectively gate signals, coupling certain dendrites preferentially over others? You know, and this other idea is also really fascinating, right? Because a neuron, let's take the place cell. Place cells in CA1, they are typically firing at one particular location in space. Sometimes, at best, they have two place fields in two different locations, or if you change contexts, right? Now, the tuning of a place cell, now, you know, there's work from Jeff McGee's lab, and uh, there are also other studies from, like, in the MEC from David Tank's lab that's showing, like, um, memory potential ramps that lead up to burst firing. We think that this burst firing of neurons requires a dendritic spike to precede it. 
and that dendritic spike is allowing for tuning of silent cells, right? Now, if a place cell encodes a particular location space, how is it that when you change the context, you know, change the, you know, you're still, the mass is located in the same place, but you say morph the walls to be more circular or change the odors around the place cells can instantaneously remap, right? And this kind of remapping to another, to have a place field in another location can happen in single trials, can happen very quickly. This may not allow for the traditional plasticity mechanisms, you know, gene regulation, protein synthesis to occur, right? This is happening within seconds. So maybe that piece of information being held in a dendrite of that cell, safe kept, till the moment arises when the context changes and that dendrite signal gets gated forward to the soma, so now the soma can change its tuning is quite attractive. I think it's quite an interesting idea for us to be able to study, and we certainly have the tools to do so now, especially if we have voltage-sensitive dyes that could be used in vivo. You know, calcium calcium is not as sensitive to single spikes or subthreshold activity, but there is meaning in subthreshold activity. If the cell only relied on action potential firing, then we'd have a rate code or a timing code. But subthreshold activity and integration over longer periods of time brings us to behavioral scale timings. So that's sort of the other idea that I kind of like pondering over. What is the meaning of subthreshold activity? You know, do we always need to talk in the currency of spikes? And maybe prior to an action potential, the things that could happen in the branches of the dendrites could predispose a neuron to be more easily plastic to another situation. It seems almost a shame to have all this rich, computationally rich information out in the dendritic tree and then have to boil it down to, I fire a spike or I don't fire a spike. It doesn't seem like a lot has been lost in that process. So. Um, if, if a dendrite represents a place field, one place field, and another represents another place field, then the smart agent is the one that decides which dendrite should be listened to. Yes. And what controls that? <laughs> yeah, we don't actually know who that smart agent is, yeah. uh, you know? That is, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of like a very important problem so yeah i mean like i agree this this all this ability to kind of discover now the secret life of the place cell you know because we've seen these places i mean it's just in my field that it's all extracellular spiking so now yeah we can see this, this secret life of the place cell like you know the, essentially what joida was was describing and then yeah you might have a function for this dendritic segregation it's like okay this maybe makes the place field in one environment this a place field in another environment you can quickly multiplex you know but but then the question remains what still what makes the dendrite active in one environment versus another so everything we've been thinking about at the level of place cell now the question kind of translates to the dendrite and it's still an active question um, open question and 
And then, yes, and then what is that in one context, so somehow there's competition with these dendrites, one takes over the others in a, in a non-linear fashion or something? Yeah, is it a winner-takes-all situation? Or is there, a very, is there a very nice architectural wiring diagram in place with these different interneurons, right? Because we have pyramidal neurons, they're fairly homogenous, although right now, more recently in the hippocampus, even C1 pyramidal neurons may have different molecular properties and firing properties, and there, there's heterogeneity, but not as much as inhibitory neurons, right? I mean, in C1 hippocampus itself, there are 28, at least 28 and growing number of <laughs> inhibitory neurons. Types of interneurons, right. yeah. And now fine-scale EM stuff. So we knew inhibition is a very nice way of modulating compartment-specific activity. We already know a lot about like soma targeting basket cells and dendrite targeting interneurons, interneurons that target apical dendrites or tough dendrites versus, uh, you know, our basal dendrites. And, you know, the cortex and the hippocampus one sees very nice stratification of, the, of inhibitory neurons and their axons, right? But then there are newer studies from Nelson Spruston's lab where they've seen even within the branch of a dendrite, the tip of the branch versus the uh, branching point could be targeted by different interneurons or inhibitory neuron synapses. So now if we think of it that way, Inhibitory neurons also express a lot of different types of neuromodulatory receptors. They're tuned to very specific frequencies. So it allows for much more richer, you know, a play box for us to play the piano now because you have different types of interneurons that could be engaged by different behavioral states, right, or different sensory stimuli or frequencies upstream. And then they are blocking very specifically certain branches over others. So if you dial the knob of inhibition up for a certain dendritic branch, it gets muted and its signal doesn't reach the soma, or the soma gets cut off pretty close to you know where uh, it you know where the apical dendrite starts out. You know so. Uh, the soma doesn't get the signal, although it propagates all the way down. And then you could have other dendrites that could be disinhibited. You know, you could have inhibitory neurons targeting other interneurons or, you know, retrograde messenger systems like the cannabinoid system that could suppress inhibition selectively. And so then you could have these knobs of gain modulation, which is through inhibition, and it's efficient, it's fast. It's not in the time scale of plasticity. Of course, plasticity will happen over time, but these first moments when, say, an animal explores a novel environment or experiences a shocking moment, you know, contextual fear learning is a one-trial learning. The animal has to learn it or it won't survive, right? If there's a predator in its environment, it has to actively avoid that environment. This has to be done fairly quickly. And inhibition seems to be a quite a nice system to be able to do that. So yeah. even on a fine scale, so coupling between two dendrites, imagine two branches, daughter branches of the same parent dendrite, yeah. uh, the amount of coupling between those two and the parent could be individually controlled by yeah. inhibition. This would a uh, frightening concept for the experimentalist who's now looking at these dendritic branches and trying to figure out who's controlling the soma, and it's sort of hidden uh, 
inhibition phenomenon, which yeah. is not super easy to detect, is changing the landscape of the neurons logic in real time while you're watching it. Um, if you're not controlling that on your, it's controlling your experiment, <laughs> you're not controlling it. Well, we do have a lot of tools now to be able to turn on and off different inhibitory neurons, and we could do it in a temporally precise manner, uh -huh. employ closed loop manipulation, so you could, and you could also use methods like holography, which allows you to target only the active neuron when it's active in the behavioral uh -huh. trial. So I think one it's hard, yes, and but one could start manipulating the inhibitory neurons to see if there's more globalized signaling then. You know, you remove a certain kind of inhibition and you see if now, you know, all the brand, you know, the cell is signaling only one type of information or not. I also think over time, as the cell starts burst firing more, you're going to have backpropagating action potential. So what's the, uh, how's the backpropagating action potential figure into this whole thing? It's uh, I think a lot of the things we've been looking at with calcium imaging, where there have been three or four studies who say that there have been very globalized signals in all the dendritic branches. And I think for the most part, those are backpropagating action potentials that, you know, a cell that bursts fires or fires at a high frequency will have action potentials that would pervade back into the dendrites and allow for all the dendrites to then start speaking the language of the soma, so almost a dictatorship. So in that case, you're thinking, when you say speaking, you're saying adjusting synaptic plasticity so that they are in conjunction with the yeah. soma's logic. Yes. Yes, you are, one could say it that way. And, and essentially, you globalize the signal. But that's also another form of plasticity in a way, right? Yeah. And it it's is branch homogeneity. And, you know, Dan yeah. Dombeck's lab has found that neurons that have more homogeneous activity in their basal dendrites, they have more precise place fields, you know, the soma. So there is a function to that as well. I see. So place cell development could actually be a process of reducing the diversity yes. of dendritic activity. Yeah, perhaps, uh, perhaps a more stable place cell that does not remap very much or is not as dynamic, you know, it, because it stabilizes, it might have to globalize its signal and not have all these different dendritic signals. But present. then the problem remains because if the place cell needs to have different behaviors, different uh, uh, tuning curves yes. in different environment, if it homogenize, then it loses memory of multiple environments, right? So you need yes. still need. So basically, from kind of the framework you're thinking, and going back to Charlie's question about where is the smart agent? So it seems like now the smart agent would be to be some types of interneurons. Who then at that point they become the question: How do they get sensitized to contextual changes? Yes. And then somehow they trigger now the change of coding in the place yeah. cells. But then for those cells where uh, there is this homogenization of the dendrite, those cells probably will lose the ability to 
remap remaps across context yes that could be one way of thinking about it the other way of thinking about it is if you look at the place cell ensemble there are some neurons that are more flexible and some mm-hmm. that are more stable and maybe the neurons that are more flexible have more diversity of coding in their dendrites mm-hmm. allowing them to remap and then there are neurons that are very very stable that are more you know more homogenous mm-hmm. can how does that fit into the normal thinking about the formation of place cells to begin with i know this is something francesco thinks about well so i think it's very interesting because it seems to me that um, I think there is a so uh, Joida mentioned a number of studies, including these homogenization studies. So these are different groups, you know, like your group, and you know, you mentioned Dombeck, and uh, you know, this. I'm, I'm thinking also of you know Mike Brecht and the people who came yes, from that lab, Albert, Albert Lee. Yeah, Albert Lee, yes. So there are differences, and obviously, it's just so much hard experiments that people are really kind of discovering, you know, what really goes on incrementally. And But there seems to be one thing that is kind of common, is very much interest to me, that to some extent, the plasticity that sets up the place field, to some extent, that process of formation uh, begins at the sub-threshold or, you know, yeah. non, non-action potential level you know before action potential start but then when you look at that process it seems to me that the traditional way of thinking still applies it's just that you have to apply to a dendritic maybe compartment perhaps or maybe the old cell but then and at the beginning you know the plasticity is more about perhaps dendritic spikes or back propagating well back propagating action potential no we rule them out because otherwise that that can only happen after the cell starts firing so but before the cell starts firing you know there are dendritic spikes for example so maybe that's where uh, you know the you know the classic thinking still applies there and i'm a little confused because then people started questioning for example the um the term hebian whether hebian it's really hebian and not that I'm particularly attached to the Hebian terminology. We all know that Heb wasn't the first. Heb himself, you know, said that, and he didn't think that was his, his you know, his best idea. The, you know, the, the best ideas were others. But you know, the point is, in a way, it's still kind of Hebian. It's just it happens more at the dendritic level, and it has a much longer time constant because now we're talking about dendritic spikes that might kind of have. Uh, you know, trace activity over seconds instead of... So this idea that, okay, you know, now it's not neurons that fire together, wire together. You know, if you consider fighting the actual action potential fighting, you know, yes, of course, you know, that's that's kind of uh, failing the, that kind of template. But if you think about fighting more at something that happened intracellular, um, everything happens intracellular, but you know, sub-threshold, not, right. not reaching the action potential, then I think I'm still think that some of the class of thinking still applies. It's just that we need to kind of maybe look more carefully about what happens at the... I mean, membrane. depolarization is a very good ingredient, right? Yeah. Like for allowing for calcium-induced calcium release or NMDA receptor activation, which can allow for more 
like uh, exponential, superlinear or nonlinear functions yeah. to happen. But you know, you brought up an interesting idea of the heavy and plasticity. Like we, we really find that idea very attractive because, because it gives us a way to think about input specificity or input selectivity. And just a little while ago, Charlie and I were discussing how, hey, a place cell could be artificially converted to have a different place field anywhere on a belt where an animal is running, for example. Or, you know, in, you could basically artificially manipulate the activity of a neuron to tune it to a certain location or a feature, right? And that could only happen if the wiring was in place already that 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 every neuron is probably privy or knows about all the sensory information that's arriving right because that input has to be present and then you are artificially boosting that input or the power the input output transformation function for that input by depolarizing the cell momentarily Right, so the Michael yeah, Brecht, Jerome Epstein, yeah, Andrea Bugalossi, and uh, Buzaghi too, they Buzzaghi, do with yeah. optogenetics, their team. So, yeah. And it's very interesting because sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes the place field ends up like remapping somewhere else where it's not where you wanted it to be through artificial stimulation. And I think all of that actually had like graduate students really working on this problem, you know, in computational model. But I think all that is explaining exactly by what you said. It's like, are there inputs available to sustain activity in that yes. spot or not? Yeah. And so you're like, you're not to stimulate in that spot or not and, and kind of induce that artificial place field somehow. Formation. Yeah. One thing about that, you know, the idea that synaptic plasticity could be controlled locally and, and so different things could be getting potentiated in different yes. places on the cell, um, which makes perfectly great sense if different branches of the dendrite or different groups of branches are representing different concepts or whatever, different parts of the logical equation that the cell is performing. But doesn't, doesn't it require that the synaptic input also has to parse out? So if we're imagining a bunch of pyramidal cells, say, that have axons crossing over their dendritic trees. And so when we look at that kind of stuff anatomically, we yeah. say, oh, well, this axon has access to all the branches of this cell. Yeah. And so we assume it probably does go to all the branches of the cell. But well, yeah. we don't know that. We yeah. can't see that. And you, But if I say to, to people, well, maybe they don't. Maybe they this axon was seeking this branch of this cell and that branch of that cell and that branch of this other cell. You say, oh, well, how could they do that? How would they find their way? It's probably not true. But um, what do you think? The, the reason that the different branches are activated at different times must mean they get different inputs and that those inputs are concentrated on that branch. Or, or is there another way? Yeah, I, th I think the inputs might be concentrated on that branch, yes. There the, input, the excitatory inputs could be fairly homogenous and the inhibitory inputs are doing the job of selecting which branch gets excited more versus not. There could be other neuromodulatory factors also at play to boost activity. But I think 
you brought up another interesting point here. You know, there's this laminarization that we are quite fascinated by in the cortex, the six-layer cortex or the three-layer hippocampus, where inputs from distinct brain areas are coming in a very segregated fashion to the distal tough dendrites or the layer one, you know, distal tough dendrites in layer one in the cortex or SLM, stratum lacunosum molecular in the hippocampus, where there are basal dendrites receiving inputs from another area, then recurrent inputs coming together. And I think these input streams could also define the functional output of the dendrites at that level. So it may Maybe when we study lots of dendrites at the same time, populations of it, we'll discover that maybe in a laminar fashion, maybe dendrites in a certain layer are behaving functionally more similarly to each other than in another layer. In fact, there is a study that's going to come out from my lab where we have been able to image from many, many dendrites at the same time. Now, imaging from many dendrites is not the challenge. You can express GCAMP or voltage-sensitive dyes in many neurons at the same time. But the uh, intricate branching of dendrites and the overlapping doesn't allow you to separate the signal from overlapping branches as cleanly with high fidelity. And that is what poses a challenge. So the dendritic imaging field has largely been restricted to looking at sparsely labeled preparations where you can resolve one, you know, one neuron's dendrites. But many times in sparsely coded structures like the hippocampus, if you just looked at very few cells, you're missing out on a lot of important information. And we can't do like things like population vector decoding or you know, look at stability over time. So we have developed some computational algorithms to be able to automatically segment dendrites because that is tedious doing it manually. But beyond that, we've also developed algorithms to do fitness traces and separate the signals from overlapping branch segments. Now, with that, we're finding that apical dendrites are more stable than basal dendrites across days. Basal dendrites have smaller place fields than soma and apical dendrites. Could this be because of the different types of inputs they're receiving? This is CA3, right? This is in CA3. Apical dendrites are getting inputs more from the recurrent circuit or the dentate gyrus, whereas the basal dendrites are mostly getting recurrent input. And enterorhinal cortex input, yeah. CA3 place cells are known to be usually smaller than the one in CA1, so Uh it would probably make sense that the dendrites that receive mostly the recurrent collateral from uh, CA3 might have. Because then the one in the the apical, you get the... You do do get also recurrent, but then you also have, for example, um, so the one closer at MEC... So you and can the, maybe yeah. grid cells and things like that. So yeah. then you go more LEC. at the distal, it's lateral internal yeah. cortex, where perhaps the contextual signal is coming yes. in. We don't really know where this contextual information is. It's got to get there somehow. Yeah. And, you know, people have thought for forever that CA3, you know, you just, because you have a network, 
with a good connections. It could switch different attractors, yeah. out association memory. So all that thinking, I think, is still out there and valid. You know that that is the network. I I do tend to like a lot about like you know competition yeah. performed by a network. But perhaps it's possible that some of that thinking might be applied to different dendrites. Of course, the connections are completely different. You know, like some are, you know, the, in a network, they're more kind of discrete, you know, spike-based. And here there's more like electrical conduction, you mm -hmm. know, through all the dendrites. Mm -hmm. So the logic is different, but who knows, you know, maybe there's... Yeah. There's something about it that could be applied there too. Um, and actually, you brought up a very interesting thing. MEC inputs and LEC inputs, yeah. they're coming somewhat segregated in the yeah, in CA3, right, yes. but they're coming onto the same neurons. Yes. You know, and we've done some experiments recently. My graduate student has been recording from CA3 pyramidal neurons with uh, crimson in. Uh, MEC and Kronos and LEC, so we can use dual color optogenetics to co-activate or singly activate each pathway. So what's nice about that is then we can see if a single neuron receives input from both the spatial center and the non-spatial so-called contextual center, and a single neuron is then integrating both of these pieces of information. Because if you look at CA1, there's a proximal distal gradient. So yeah. proximal CA1 gets more MEC input and distal CA1 gets more LEC input. So there's always been this idea in the field that LEC and MEC inputs or MEC, LEC are functionally and anatomically segregated. A lot of yeah. the work from your uh, postdoc lab also yeah. shows that. But, you know, then if you look at the CA3 circuit, the dendrites have the ability yeah. to then integrate, associate these pieces of information. Mm -hmm. And that's important because we know context shapes spatial tuning. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then the other question comes up. Does the cell know the difference between these two pieces of information? And when you guys okay. use the word context, I, I always smile a little bit because you make it sound like context is a simple thing. Actually, place is simple. Yes. Context is difficult. It's yeah. abstract. And uh, and uh, yeah. and uh, the reason it's abstract is because we don't know what we're yeah. talking about. <laughs> so we yeah. don't. We can't become concrete about it yeah. because the context hasn't been well enough defined. But it's like the place is actually the easy part. It's always true with context. If I say, I, I write this sentence. I'd like to do it right, and you say, Well, I didn't have any trouble with those two words that both sound the same, right? Because I knew which one was being used because of context. Right. Well, the word is simple. The context is hard. Yeah. So, and, and the same um, thing is true with, with uh, yeah. place fields, isn't it? Not? Maybe, yeah, though, but it's like, it, it depends on how much we, whether difficult, you know, are you talking about easy, difficult, complex, oh, simple? Just how, how much information there is and what we know about it and... Yeah. How many Although, different dimensions there are to it? Yeah. So, you know, space is probably we understand it a little better. Although, I don't know that it's simple because we don't have a sensor for space. And so it's something that the brain has to make up. And as any roboticist who has tried to make robots with noisy sensor make a map knows, and yeah. I used to be one. So, like, you know, it's actually you have to use very sophisticated algorithms. So. But, and, and that's one of the things that attracted me is like, you know, if it's so difficult, you know, how does the brain do it? You know, like, what, what can we say about the brain about that? 
context, I think, yeah, it might be very hard because we don't really know how it works. Although you might think about some kind of attractor dynamics in which if you're looking at two different rooms with completely different visual landscape, the kind of sensor you encoded it somehow, at some point it's just different enough that you can make like a jump, a discrete jump between two states of a network. And that a lot of thinking goes along those lines. I don't know if that's right, but let's just say that that's right. So in that case, it would not be necessarily that difficult. Um, but if you're only thinking about one dimension of context. Yeah. Yes. I, I, but I, context I, is multidimensional. Yes. Yeah. So I think, I think context brings that multidimensionality to our representations. And I mean, we do keep, uh, keep saying LEC might be doing that, but I mean, we like to bucket things, right? So far, for a long time, people would say spatial and non-spatial. And non-spatial didn't have a definition at that time. But I think the last 10, 15 years, a lot of people have gone, I mean, especially in your field, you know, doing tetrode recordings in the LEC. And they found what LEC responds to. Yeah. We know it's highly odor-driven, right? It gets direct inputs from the olfactory bulb and the piriform cortex. It can encode different odors, but you know, there's feature selectivity in LEC for different types of odors. Mice are very olfactory driven. We're also very odor driven species, right? And so that presents a very important context here. Odor yeah. and food, seeking food rewards, is all very associated with that odor, right? And appetitive rewards, which is salient again, you know. And then on the other hand, there's an object coding is yeah. very much by LEC, yeah. but it's not just the object, it could be a novel object, yeah. or it could be displacement of this object to a new location, and the animal remembers that this was here, and it goes here, and LEC neurons trace cells start firing. So it's a change that LEC yeah. is detecting, yeah. or was, it could uh, be rules, learning rules. Yeah. That was pioneered by uh, Sachin Deshmukh that we had here. It was my dear colleague, so yeah. like, you know, he was just kind of one of the first accounts for, you know, object-related responses of neurons in LEC, yeah. which we had no idea what they were doing. It was a daunting project. So I think that's a challenge um, for people studying difference, because we really ought to see, ought to get control of context, use yeah. it as a stimulus, and then look at what's happening in dendritic coupling. Yes. Since if you're right, then yeah. that's where it ought to be playing yeah. out. So we're really interested in the LEC inputs into the hippocampus and how they shape dendritic integration. And we just published a study from our lab, uh, Alessia Bilash, a graduate student in the lab, who's now moved on to doing her postdoc at Cornell. She just started this month for her postdoc. She patched from distal tough dendrites of CA1 pyramidal neurons intracellularly, and she had channel rhodopsin in the LEC, so she could only activate LEC inputs, you know, as versus electrical stimulation that would recruit a mixed input. And when she activated these LEC inputs, she found two things. One, if you record in the soma, the soma never fires a spike to this activation of the LEC input. So then one wonders, what good is this input for? It's not driving spikes in the soma. But she goes and records in the dendrite, the loci of these inputs. The dendrites show these nice, beautiful dendritic spikes. 
And this can happen when inhibition is intact under physiological conditions without pairing with any other input. The central dogma often for dendritic spikes are that you need coincident inputs to integrate together or you need a somatic depolarization or you need to block inhibition. She was optogenetically stimulating single pulses at low light intensities and getting these dendritic spikes. So well, that's she, uh, that seems like something we ought to read. And I'll put the reference to that in our show notes today for anybody who is interested in looking that paper up. Yeah. So thank you very much. Um, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you, Joita, and also Francesco. Thank you. For joining thank us. Thank you. Today.